Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Our team thing is still the greatest. <laughs> yes, <ever>. absolutely is. <laughs> Guys, the shutdown's over. Yeah, we're, we're back in business. We're in disaster after two days. I, I thought we were going to have to shut down, too. <laughs> Welcome I feel back, like guys. we actually averted averting disaster by letting them come back to work. <laughs> well, welcome back. It's uh, Barstool Politics. Uh, I am your host, Nick McGuire, and I'm joined, as always, by uh, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College. Uh, Phil Barker is not here today, but in his place we have uh, Professor Tom Cavanaugh, who is a professor of law as well as a professor of leadership, ethics, and values at North Central College. How's it going, Tom? It's great to be back. It's good to have you, good especially have you this week when there are so many great legal questions. And so we have Tom, who's a wonderful legal mind and has a wonderful beer acumen. So that <laughs> <laughs> brings a lot to the table. Yeah. Uh, I, we got to talk somewhat about the shutdown. I, I think so. I was, yeah, I, 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 as I was telling you guys this week, I'm not excited to talk about the shutdown. To me, it captures the worst of our government. Yeah. Uh, all the ugliness, the, uh, you know, you've got a situation where individuals in the shutdown in 2013 are now in the opposite position. They're saying the opposite things, whether it's Schumer or Ted Cruz, all of it. It's just, it's, it's kind of an ugliness that uh, doesn't make me feel good about government. Right, right. You feel good about government sometimes? No. <laughs> <laughs> government has its moments, and this is just some of the most cynical, it just reveals so much about what, what can be broken. Agreed. Um, yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I mean, how do we even break this? I mean, what what did we what did we take out of this? I mean, besides the fact that what we saw was really ugly and petty and stupid. Can can we agree the Democrats lost? <laughs> is, that, is that a universe? So I mean, so what was going on is that uh, the Democrats were trying to use DACA as a bargaining chip. So that's what they wanted, and there was hope. They were hoping that the Trump administration and the Republicans would agree to that. And then the Democrats basically agreed for a three-week extension, which isn't a great thing, uh, and didn't get anything on DACA. So it feels like it's just kicking the can down the road. And in some ways, talking about winning and losing is silly. But uh, I don't think the Democrats won, that's for sure. No, apparently the media doesn't think that either. Every story is about how the Democrats lost and what the positioning was of the Republicans. And it's hard to stick up for illegal immigrants when the other side is saying that... um, people who are in the military aren't getting paid because they want to protect illegal immigrants. They did get, uh, well, it wasn't a promise. I guess you might call it an assurance for Mitch McConnell that they would do DACA. And I think that positions Democrats well for the next shutdown (laughs) that starts in 17 days or whatever (laughs) it is. I mean, in other words, what they did win was the ability to describe why they're shutting down the next time and, and frame it as Mitch McConnell lied to them as opposed to uh, we're shutting the government down for immigration reasons. Mm-hmm. That's true, and we will see that play out over the next couple of weeks. Now, Schumer has come out and said that the wall is non-negotiable. 
So then the question is, does the Trump administration, are they even interested in a conversation about this? Uh, I, I have a feeling we're going to be back here in, what, 17 days having the same conversation. Of course. Uh, yeah. Well, season. Schumer says the wall is not negotiable. He, too, is uh, not taking a position that is <laughs> right. uh, conducive to agreement. Schumer I have a solution down. for this, yeah. actually, uh, a procedural one. And, uh, and I'm serious about it. Illinois' constitution has in it a provision that permits only single-issue legislation. That is to say, you can't tie up two things in one bill. I was thinking that myself. <laughs> uh, that would solve this problem. Yeah. In fact, it would solve the problem of using a shutdown uh, because you'd strip away the budget questions from anything else as to any other public policy issue. Now, Illinois has failed in so many other ways. <laughs> it's, it's shocking, but... What an interesting idea it would be to say that the federal government had to do single-issue legislation mm -hmm. so that we'd stop having conversations like, we're not going to fund the government because, and fill in the blank thereafter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's entirely possible. It would mean that you would have real conversations about each issue, right. which maybe means nothing gets done because you expose how difficult it is. But maybe things do get done because you realize down the road it's in your interest to compromise. Mm -hmm. um, the DACA one is interesting because it feels like the Republicans have... Sh so Trump is to the right on the issue of immigration, but I don't think the Republican Party always was. But now it feels it's moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. I heard something this week where they were playing back Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush on immigration, and they had different positions than where Trump is. And I, I think the party was somewhere in between. But on this issue, it feels like at least they're open to a further right position on that. And we'll see how that all plays out. Mm -hmm. oh. um, the Russian bots, Nick? Yeah. I honestly did, had not heard about this until, until you brought it up. So there's an organization that is now tracking these Russian bots. And what they found is on a particular day, uh, there was this conversation. There was hashtag of Trump shutdown versus the Schumer shutdown. And they were both about the same. And then suddenly Schumer shut down, shot to the top of Twitter hashtags. And they were trying to figure out what was going on. But the Russian bots got in and started cycling this. And it got more and more attention. Uh, and so Russia is continuing to engage our political system. And there really isn't anything at this point we've figured out to do about it. It's just... I mean, I just thought they were better at marketing. Schumer <laughs> shutdown just sounds so much better than Trump shutdown. Does, yes. <laughs> well, just, Republicans just are better at all tongue. of that. Um, <laughs> um, and then, I, I mean, you can, uh, well, you can't necessarily really debate this, but Trump's actual involvement in the negotiation process seemed to be fairly limited. And there were varying opinions of he should be more involved, he's integral to both of these conversations, or he's an idiot and it's better that he's not there and we're getting more done without him, which clearly they did not get much done in the first place. The dealmaker in chief really wasn't involved. And that was part of his campaign, was that he could get things done. And do you think it was the Republicans who wanted him to stay out? Or do you think he wasn't engaged? Or what was, because you're right, he was not involved in the negotiations in a productive way mm -hmm. at all. Do you think he's, he was, was he well, running from this? Do we or? know that? Uh, one has to preface anything said that even suggests uh, a scintilla of positiveness <laughs> about Trump <laughs> That's true. Uh, with maybe I don't love the guy, but... Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know that he wasn't involved. We know that he kept his Twitter account, uh, his Twitter account right. uh, quiet. And we know that he didn't make public statements during that little window of time. I don't know that that means for sure that he wasn't involved. Maybe mm -hmm. he was. 
Mm-hmm. It's it's possible, and it might be helpful for him to stay publicly in Twitter, removed from the conversation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It allows the Republicans a little more leeway. It allows the Democrats a little more wiggle room to negotiate because Trump is such a divisive figure. Yeah. But I, he had all those lovely pictures of him sitting at the desk <laughs> and apparently right. talking to people. He's, with getting, nothing he's on calling the people desk. and getting work done. <laughs> but is it possible to imagine? Maybe he learned something here, right? Yeah. Step back for just two and a half days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and people could reach some sort of accommodation. It's mm-hmm. not a very permanent one or, or a very meaningful one, but, but something happened without right. him tweeting. I, I bet the Democrats were thinking that Trump was going to be involved and would make it worse. Right? That's the ah. thing. You know, gets involved yeah. Yeah, and yeah. says something stupid, and then suddenly the Republicans want this issue to go away, and they're willing to deal. And so the fact that he didn't do this mm-hmm. uh, allowed the Republicans to drag it out. And as the longer it dragged out, it became clear that the Republicans were winning this PR battle, and we got a settlement, or a short-term settlement. Yeah. 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 So, I, it's, I mean, what realistically is, what's the end game? Like, I, I mean, we, we're... At least I'm of the of the opinion, and I think you guys probably are too, that we're going to be in the same situation. What fifteen days from now? Is it fifteen now? Um, how how do we stop this process? And I, I mean, we can talk about changes in uh, methods of legislation and what you can actually bring forward uh, to the floor. But uh, in in the amount of time that we have, is there any chance of a long term solution to this continuing resolution problem. It's been how many years now that we've been running the government like this? It's insane. And we should say that the military looks at this as terrible because they can't plan. If you've got a Mm short-term budget, they can't think about aircraft carriers and all these big decisions. Mm -hmm. So it's it's bad for everybody in a nonpartisan way. I would would hope at some point it becomes so dysfunctional that there's a a middle ground, but I'm I'm not convinced that's the case yet. Uh, No. I I mean, (laughs) I tweeted... I had uh, I was in D.C. the last time that uh, that there was a shutdown in 2013, and it was the same basic premise. And they've cl- they haven't learned anything since then. It, it just it boggles my mind that something that at least on the surface can be so detrimental to the fabric of government uh, govern governance. Wow, it's been mm-hmm. what a quarter of <laughs> half a beer. Half a beer. <laughs> uh, um, it is a nine percenter, though, isn't it? It's a nine percenter. <laughs> delicious. Nine point two percenter. <laughs> Just I, I, it. There doesn't seem to be any um, give on either side as to a long term solution or method of compromise that s- at least seem to be in place prior to the past few incarnations of Congress. Yeah. Each individual member of Congress is, is still driven by a, a re-election interest that is not going to be consistent with having a long-term right. bipartisan cooperative approach. So I think, yeah, we're, we're stuck, at least in the short term. So mm-hmm. um, Great. I'm glad we agree on yeah. that. We did 10 minutes, Nick. Can we talk the Mueller investigation? Yeah, okay. <laughs> God, All right. That. So let's give everybody a quick update. Special Counsel Mueller has been quite active over the last couple weeks. Uh, we learned that the Mueller team has interviewed Attorney General Jeff Sessions, F, uh, former FBI Director James Comey, and will soon be meeting with uh, former Trump Chief of, uh, Chief Strategist Steve Bannon. But the biggest news is that the investigation has clawed all the way up to Donald Trump himself. Mueller has requested a sit-down with the president to discuss the dismissal of James Comey and Michael Flynn. 
Now, additionally, uh, the fiancé of George, don't call me Stephanopoulos, Papadopoulos, uh, gave an interview saying that he was much more than a coffee boy and that history will remember him like John Dean from the Watergate investigation. Now, all this is starting to feel like Watergate, but I'd like to start with a question for Tom. Now, you, you are a lawyer. If you were Trump's lawyer, would you advise him to sit down and answer questions with Robert Mueller? No. No. <laughs> you want me to think about it for a little bit? No. <laughs> so why not? Um, well, for several reasons. First, I think that he's got an executive privilege uh, as to virtually all of what it is that uh, Mueller would like to ask him. And I think it would set a terrible precedent for him to waive that both for himself and for future presidents. Second, uh, the art of a deposition, which is effectively what that is, is to try and uh, adduce from somebody testimony that you can later can uh, contradict. Um, and I don't, uh, again, this is, you're asking yeah. me if I'm his lawyer, right. right? I don't think he's smart enough to avoid saying things now that will later be uh, in some uh, significant way contradicted. Uh, and that may or may not be because there's a genuine contradiction. Sure. He, he talks off the top of his head. He does it in ways that are intended to provoke. Uh, and I don't know that you could control him as a client in a deposition. Uh, so w when I took uh, and gave them, my clients heard from me, the very first thing out of my mouth was, don't you open your mouth until I look at you. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's serious. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. anybody who does a deposition tells their client, you don't answer questions until I look to you and let you know you should. Uh, uh, you can tell them your name, and thereafter we start looking at each other before you answer questions. I think Trump's ego is so magnificent uh, and massive uh, that he won't do that. And you have now, again, to, you're asking me if no, I'm his lawyer, right. what would my advice be? Mm -hmm. And it would be assert executive privilege, keep your mouth shut, and keep saying there's not a shred of evidence about collusion uh, of any sort at all yet. Assuming, yeah, assuming that, that he's completely innocent, he could still get himself in trouble. Right. And, and they talk about Robert Mueller. I've been reading this week. They're saying that he is, he's, he's kind of a killer in these depositions. Like, he knows how to set people up. And so it's, it's a very, very dangerous situation for him. Very dangerous. Is yeah. there anything short of him sitting down and answering questions that they could do? I mean, they've talked about yeah. writing answers. Yeah. Is that something if, if – would Robert Mueller be likely to accept that? Mueller knows that it's not Trump writing the answers. Mm -hmm. It's his lawyers writing the answers. So I suspect that uh, he sees that as a very distant second place to getting a live interview with the president. I, if I'm Mueller uh, and know the executive privilege assertion is coming, maybe one um, sort of middle ground between on the record, under oath, interview, and written answers from your lawyer is a non-on the record, non-under uh, oath, interview mm -hmm. uh, with some very strong confidentiality uh, uh, provisions attached to it. In other words, we'll sit down in the Oval Office, you talk to my client, it cannot be on the record, and uh, I want an absolute assurance of confidentiality at this point. I, I don't even know if that would necessarily, <clears throat> I think there's enough paranoia about leaks in the administration and among different branches of, mm -hmm. of government that I I don't even think that would be a possibility for this I doubt it would be. I'm trying to imagine what's Mueller going to say sure. when, when the president says, I'm asserting executive privilege and I'm not even coming to your end of uh, Washington, D.C. So if, if he did that, so Mueller subpoenaed Steve Bannon, mm -hmm. and then apparently it's been negotiated down where they're just going to have a conversation. 
if can he throw a subpoena at the president? Or would executive the subpoena privilege... doesn't trump executive? Yes, he can. Yeah, uh, but the uh, subpoena doesn't trump executive privilege. Yeah, so that will be the response from Trump's lawyer to the subpoena. And bear in mind that what Mueller's got, and this is true of any lawyer in a context where you're uh, a special counsel or an, investi- uh, an investigator, you know both sides, but the other side doesn't know what's being said. He knows what Bannon will say, mm-hmm. right? Will have said or. Uh, fill in the blank. He knows what uh, Flynn said. Uh, so he can frame his questions in that interview based on what he knows other people have said, but based on what the person in the deposition doesn't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that doesn't even happen in civil litigation, where, where depositions are all on the record, both sides are represented, uh, and, and the product of the deposition becomes a part of the court record. You've got a legal and a political game playing out because yeah. the legal game seems incredible. It's a minefield to walk through. Yeah, the political game. If Trump says, and he's been saying this, I don't have anything to hide. I'm happy to talk. Right, right, Go right. give the interview. Have the conversation. That sells, and it makes it seem like there's not much to the to the Russian investigation. So it's it's difficult to negotiate all of that out. Mm-hmm. Um, but as he plays out this narrative about the the lost text messages and and the profoundly conflicted uh, Mueller team. I think the narrative he follows is, I don't have anything to hide, but I'm not putting myself in a position where people that are not fairly and objectively investigating Mm -hmm. uh, are are listening to me. It is people deeply conflicted and with an agenda are investigating me. And the beautiful thing for him is that he doesn't have to make that argument as much anymore. Now you have, so just the last couple days, uh, Ron Johnson, uh, senator from Wisconsin, is coming out suggesting that there's a secret society within the FBI that is out to get Donald Trump. I mean, this is back to McCarthyism and some of the hype about it. It's, I, I, But it works well for him politically yeah, because he can say... This is all a witch hunt. This is all about politics. You know, I'll do the interview, but there's nothing there. But at the end of the day, don't you think Mueller wants to, to hammer down something to say, here is the truth, here is, here is the evidence, right? I mean, he wants to be above politics. Is, is that even possible? I, I mean, uh, objectively speaking, yeah, I think it's possible. Subjectively and from a uh, public opinion standpoint, no, it's not even kind of possible. You don't think so? No, regardless of what comes out of this, he's. There is no way that you are going to get a preponderance of the American people who think that this is a legitimate um, uh, decision or. Uh, um, wow, why can't I think of the word? Um, Papadopoulos. Yeah, Papadopoulos. <laughs> that's been achieved. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I don't think, especially anyone anyone on the right, regardless of whether you're talking about the base uh, or anyone who even kind of leans, you know, moderately to slightly more conservative, I don't think... There's enough polarization now to consider a scenario where even if all the evidence is there and it's pretty airtight, that they'll think it was legitimately achieved or or um gathered without political motivation this should be concerning though because you think about yes, robert Mueller, a, a republican who served in republican administrations who is a law and order man if there's anybody who should be above this partisan critique i can't imagine anybody else who would have that that sort of mo of doing that mm-hmm. and if he can also be tainted that's that's concerning for the fbi for law i mean does that bother you as all of it bothers yeah. me uh, uh, there's a sense in which, though, he, he sort of 
uh, waived some of that credibility by building a team that appears to have been constructed uh, of people that do have an ax to grind about this president. Mm -hmm. I recognize this is in some ways talk radio fodder, who gave money to who and that sort of thing. But it does look like the people that were on the team and it does, you know, the texts that were lost Mm -hmm. are part of a chain some of which we have that make it perfectly clear that those two it was just had a glitch, Tom, just grind. a glitch. Yeah, it was just just a glitch. <laughs> it was a glitch in the IRS. It was a glitch <laughs> right. in the Hillary Clinton thing. This, but but I say that not, not to be cute. I say it because I think you're right. There's there's an undermining of public trust in the most important law enforcement agency in America when they consistently uh, admit that they lost things. Let's yeah. forget why. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's forget who. If the FBI can't preserve evidence, this is terrifying yeah no it is uh and i will say i i I think that he brought a team on that he thought would be good at going after trump and i I, I don't know if i blame him for that right if you're thinking about the case he he i don't think he's driven by partisan motivations but it's easy to fall into that trap of seeing it that way yeah and i'm not arguing that he is either i'm saying that i think reasonable people might look at the background of the people that are now on that team and say, um, this isn't a prosecution, right, where you're zealously representing a client. He is supposed to be an objective in the middle. Uh, And I I guess I'd say I'd have been more careful if I was he about constructing a team that had a more evenly balanced appearance to it. Sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, my hope is that whatever whatever comes from this, whether it's a report or more indictments, whatever it is that, similar to to Watergate, there is some clarity. Not everybody's going to agree with it, but at least yeah. people feel that the process played. And again, to a point you made earlier, Tom, we don't know what he knows. And maybe in releasing some of this information, it brings clarity. It makes us say, okay, here's where we are. This is what Russia did. Here are the the individuals that were involved and that are, are culpable, and then here are the individuals that are not. But there's got to be some, I think, catharsis to this. And that, that's my hope is that, and I think he's savvy enough to understand that. Uh, so we will see as it all plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have that kind of hope, but that's cute. You don't cute. think so? Yeah, <laughs> it's cute. In, well, enjoy at, that. At, at the illness of American politics today is the instinct to investigate everything. Mm-hmm. So rather than governing, rather than negotiating, rather than writing legislation, Congress spends its time investigating. Uh, It seems to me this is one of the principal difficulties with modern American democracy, that we've made Congress into an investigative body as opposed to a legislative body. And as to your question earlier, what do we do about, you know, gridlock on DACA and uh, uh, continuing resolutions? What do you do about that? Right, right. I suppose they're obligated to do these things, but boy, oh boy, announcing another investigation of another person this is uh, this is really worrisome. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. And I, I would say it it's, I'm also troubled. So another bit of news that broke in the last couple of days was that uh, after Trump fired Comey, he brought in. So Andrew McCabe was the deputy director of the FBI. And Trump brought him in and asked him who he voted for. Supposedly. Supposedly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and McCabe uh, said that he didn't vote. Now, the problem for Trump is that McCabe's wife ran for did she run for congress i'm trying to remember what she ran for i can't remember if it was yeah i can't remember something right as a democrat so there was you know the the partisan affiliation there and again mccabe is a lifer at the fbi you know bureaucrat by all intents and purposes not somebody who's driven by partisan motivation but then you have the president pursuing that loyalty pledge along with what he did to comey and it just feels like all of this is getting driven by 
politics. And the FBI was one of those institutions that you always felt was somewhat untouchable. Uh, well, I mean, the other part of that is you have the specters of the Clintons again in this investigation. Sure. In Well, this potential investigation yeah. uh, where uh, McCabe's wife and their family in general were fairly close friends with the Clintons. Uh, and um, who was, was it McAuliffe? Who ran oh, uh, uh, Clinton's from Virginia, yes. campaign? Yeah. yeah. Uh, who gave, I think it was half a million dollars to... Uh, McCabe's wife's campaign. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, regardless of whether you think that's um, untoward, I guess, or, or a suspect, I, you have that seed of doubt that's once again been sowed, mm-hmm. you know, again, surrounding the Clintons and their involvement in, sure. you know, the political... Um, I'll just pull a phrase out of my ass: secret society <laughs> yes. or deep state. This this stuff happens in D.C. though. It's was, yeah. it's uh, Clarence Thomas's wife, right? Isn't she connected? She ran a federal agency, didn't she? Yeah. Right? So yeah. The, it's, it's not uncommon to have. Spouses. It's very incestuous. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, but, and so is there a better literal. argument for term limits than right. uh, <laughs> this merry-go-round of people who yeah. never leave Washington mm-hmm. and just continually find some new yeah. political or right. appointed position? Ugh. It, it, it's it's a bizarre thing. So uh, Jeff Sessions testifying or uh, inter- being interviewed by Mueller. What, what do you what do you envision that was like? I mean, because he d- does he he doesn't get to uh, executive privilege isn't relevant there, but he's a lawyer. Yeah, right. So he's going to handle. And he's it. a really good one, <laughs> right? Uh, whatever you think of him politically or, or as a human being, uh, he's no dummy. Yeah, and I suspect Mueller got next to nothing. Nothing out him. of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. For me, much of this feels like this is a conversation among Republicans because you have Mueller talking to, to Comey, giving getting one story, and then talking to Sessions, and so it's all it's in some ways the Democrats are left out of this, uh, which is why I think the some of the partisan stuff is partisan stuff critique is curious. But uh, mm-hmm. um, I would have been I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when Mueller is interviewing Comey to see that because those two have a relationship as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yet another. Appearance of right impropriety is too strong a word, but but certainly the appearance of it. Uh, it, it Comey's compromised when he is interviewing a friend. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, right. If I'm investigating my friend Bill Muck, right, uh, uh, and behind closed doors where no one knows what I'm asking and what you're saying, I suspect most people would think I go easy on you, and then I go hard on whoever it is yes. who isn't my longtime friend. Right. Absolutely. Forget political affiliation and party and who you work for and all of that. They're friends with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, the man who used to run the FBI mm-hmm. before Comey yeah. is now interviewing the guy who used to run the FBI, who ran the FBI and then got fired by Trump. No, there certainly is. That's that's a right. and this complex. is not a relationship that came as a big surprise. Right. You know, uh, post Mueller appointment, everybody right. knew about this going in. It's totally separate from politics. This could be defending the FBI as an institution dynamic, yeah. where yeah. where they want to uh, retain the mm-hmm. perception of the FBI, not necessarily totally separate from any political dynamics. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Mueller's a smart guy, but I, you know, there's 330 million Americans. There were people that weren't friends with the people that were mm-hmm. going to be investigated and yes. interviewed, yes. who mm-hmm. could have been appointed to this position. Indeed. People completely outside government mm-hmm. yep. uh, who would, I think, in many ways, I'm, I'm with Nick. I, I can't imagine we're going to get any sort of answer that puts any sort of closure on this. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that because everybody who's involved has a stake in it. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you, Tom. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> so why not? Why wouldn't we appoint somebody who didn't? This is what's so shocking to yeah. me. See, that's interesting. I, Congress I, pulls out its Rolodex and, yeah. oh, look at that. Here's Robert Mueller. Yeah. I think the more comparable, you know, everybody talks about Watergate. I think this is not Watergate. This is closer to the Iran-Contra scandal in terms of how this played out and the dynamics internally. Now, the problem with the Iran-Contra scandal is that it was a congressional investigation. So it was it was dripping with partisanship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, I, I, do, I still think that Mueller can provide some sense of clarity and hopefully nonpartisan sort of decision-making here. So I, we'll, we'll see. I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Again, cute. Cute. But. All right. Should we, should we talk about the beer? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tom, do you want to tell us about this first beer? Sure. Uh, uh, listeners might recall that I brought one of my home brews. Uh, some time ago, a Baltic Porter. And what I have today is the uh, the inspiration for that beer, another Baltic <laughs> Porter. This is from my friends at Kinslager. Uh, this is an Oak Park brewery. Um, this Baltic Porter is uh, 9.2. It's very malty. Uh, a little bit of a hop finish uh, at the end. This is their flagship beer that, uh, that sort of made them... Uh, Oak Park famous, um, but they are, uh, they're expanding like gangbusters, and uh, I think you can see why when you drink this yeah, beer. It is really good stuff. It, it, you're right. It's very malty, very smooth. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not, no real coffiness to it, but I mean, it's just, it was a, it was, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, we had one last, was it last week that we had, it was a coffee porter or something? Yes. It had a really kind of strong bite to it. Yes. Before you could get to anything good. This doesn't have that, which is great. It's very smooth. Um yeah, it, it just it it lacks that um, kind of unfinished aspect yeah. to it. So, yeah. I'm told this is straight from the fermenter. So this is a a young version of of this porter. Well, maybe I'm malty, wrong. Malty, <laughs> no, no, no. But but what I mean by malty beers age well. Mm-hmm. Uh, hoppy beers don't. Hoppy beers get worse with age. So you want to drink those right malty away. Malty beers tend to get better. So the longer mm-hmm. a thing like this sits in, uh, you know, the kegs or the containers waiting, the better it gets. So. This is great now, and it'll be even better, better in three months as they're serving from this uh, this batch. Because Baltic porters seem very drinkable to me compared mm-hmm. to some of the other things that you drink that are nine percent. It's mm-hmm. almost like you're slogging through it. You're like, oh, mm-hmm. but this this is almost dangerously drinkable. Yes. Right? You could put a couple of those down and exactly. Oh yeah. yeah, exactly. We've only had the one so far, so I guess we, <laughs> so we can we can come forward. back and check in. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, should we move to speed round? Yeah. All right, you got the timer ready? I do. Okay. So uh, first, our first topic is going to be the Pennsylvania uh, State Supreme Court gerrymandering decision. On Monday, Pennsylvania State Supreme Court decided that the state's GOP-drawn congressional districts <coughs> violate the state constitution and ordered all 18 districts to be redrawn in the next few weeks. The decision will likely tilt the congressional balance of power in a key swing state in favor of Democrats. Now, there's a couple, I I think, interesting angles here. One, that it's a state Supreme Court, not the real Supreme Court or the federal Supreme Court, uh, but also that you're seeing a number of courts attack the issue of gerrymandering. Partisan gerrymandering. Yes, exactly. Partisan gerrymandering. So so as you look at this, Tom, is this a big deal, not a big deal? What's what's your sense of it all? Uh, it's a big deal politically mm-hmm. because it could shift the House. It's a far less big deal legally mm-hmm. because it's entirely based on state law. That is to say, the, the ruling uh, uh, ending these uh, districts doesn't transfer doesn't transfer to other states. Um, in fact, that was the point to the dissent, uh, one of the dissents. Uh, listen, this does nothing at a time when we're trying to figure out partisan gerrymandering other than try to apply Pennsylvania law. 
and theoretically in a way that advanced the, the interests of one party. Um, that said, anytime a judge says a map, and I'm going to just quote uh, his, his great set of words, clearly, plainly, and palpably uh, is anti-democratic, <laughs> yes. and I mean a democratic lowercase yeah. d there, uh, that's a big deal. Um, the, the Supreme Court uh, is not going to take anything, uh, is not going to take this case up. Uh, three federal judges did hear it uh, about a month and a half ago, um, and they let the map stand on the grounds that the Supreme Court was going to hear a gerrymandering, or is hearing a gerrymandering case. Um, so I think this has limited effect uh, in terms of the law. Uh, North Carolina's maps are in the news. Uh, and uh, a really interesting twist on the federal case is that the Wisconsin district, uh, one of them that's at issue in the gerrymandering case we're all waiting for, uh, gerrymandered in favor of Republicans in Wisconsin, of course, um, was won by a Democrat. And there's an awful lot of people arguing, well, doesn't that mean that this whole thing should stop right now? When if a Democrat can win a gerrymandered mm -hmm. uh, district, then maybe we shouldn't worry so much about it. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. We should worry about it. Well, Pennsylvania, which is divided, I guess, for the, the 2016 presidential election, was very close. Mm -hmm. I mean, Trump won yeah. it, but it was, you know, I can't remember if it was 51, 49. But it was close. But it is Republicans have 13 of 18 districts, given the way that they redrew those districts. So it's often said to be one of the most gerrymandered states in the country. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. does it matter... So I guess here's the question. Is it likely that this decision will be appealed to the Supreme Court or? No, I, I guess that's what I'm saying. I don't think it, it, it can because, or will be. Because there's already a case pending or just? There's a different case pending. Sure. The argument in the federal court is that the First Amendment is violated in the Wisconsin scenario. So there's a federal law invoked. Uh, and, and there isn't a comparable Wisconsin state law to the one that in Pennsylvania has been used uh, to end these maps. Sorry to uh, sure. reject these maps. Um, so I don't see the Pennsylvania case going up. Uh, now, having said that, the court always has this option. Uh, do they give a very narrow ruling, uh, solve just a tiny little problem in Wisconsin, or do we get a big ticket ruling that, that takes on the, the broad question of partisan gerrymandering? If it's a very narrow ruling, one imagines that the losers in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and other gerrymandered states are going to try and get Supreme Court attention. If it's a broad ruling, then theoretically it's going to address even state law as it relates to state maps. Does that yes, make sense? It does. It does. What about the time frame? So the, the court here gave them a few weeks to redraw this. Now, it was a similar situation in North Carolina as well, right, where they mm -hmm. said you had to do this quickly and then the was that the Supreme Court said you don't have to do anything until after the midterm election. So <laughs> I'm curious to see whether, I mean, how do you, how does, how do they redraw that so quickly? Right. Uh, I guess the question, no matter how they do it, it's more, it's, it's going to benefit Democrats. Cause I think right now it's clearly, it's, if you, when you look at the map itself, yeah. it's, you have the two urban areas, and those are Democratic districts, and everything else is Republican. So mm -hmm. it feels gerrymandered. So no matter how they tweak it, it's likely to help uh, the Democrats here. But and uh, anybody listening who hasn't looked at a map oh. of congressional districts would do themselves a favor and, and look at one. Uh, uh, some of these, there's, there's one that's Daffy Duck kicking somebody as the <laughs> yes, Mickey Mouse yes. is, is the description of what this legislative <laughs> district looks like. But you don't understand how awful gerrymandering is until you see visually what these maps actually look like. Mm -hmm. They separate communities. 
They separate parties. They separate sometimes neighbors. Uh, they are they are anti-democratic in so many profound ways. I mean, I, I was passionate yeah. about this the last time we talked well, about I mean, it. The last time we talked about it, we said that it, it encourages non it encourages partisanship it encourages the more extreme Mm -hmm. wings of the party and one way that you can address that and to circle back to a point you made earlier nick to move forward and actually get some productive legislation is maybe you elect individuals who are willing to work and compromise Mm -hmm. and so now for me all of these decisions that are attacking gerrymandered decisions are are good i'm excited about them but you're right that the the big case will be the supreme court Mm -hmm. what they say if if they punt on this or it's a mm-hmm. you know a mild tweaking like they should rethink it I, I think that's that's a loss and then it will shift yeah. back to the state courts to yeah. try to decide it. Mm-hmm. Oh, moving on. All right, <laughs> all right. Topic number two. It appears the rest of the world really hates Donald Trump, but the question is, does it matter? All right. So according to a Gallup report, one year into the Donald Trump presidency, the image of the United States leadership is weaker worldwide than it was under his two predecessors. Uh, Median approval of the U.S. leadership uh, across 134 countries and areas stands at a new low of 30%. The U.S. is now on nearly even footing with China at 30% and barely more popular than Russia at 27%. So the question that I have for you guys is whether this really matters and, and does it impact U.S. foreign policy? Uh, I, I guess, how, how big of a deal should this all be? Nick? <laughs> what do you I, think? I, I mean, I'm hesitant to look at any of these polls anymore and take them seriously, but um, I, I'm of the opinion that um, the general worldwide opinion of America in general over the past 30 years has been diminishing mm-hmm. uh, just because of our political stances and lack of ability to govern effectively and entrance into you know wars that we haven't been able to pull ourselves out of yeah i'll take that okay (laughs) just you know just gonna break down that fourth wall right now um yeah I, i mean it's concerning in some respects but um sorry i'm focused on the beer uh I, I, like I just, at some point, I just don't care. Like, mm-hmm. like I, we know there are severe issues that are going on right now, and there needs to be some sort of legislative solution. But regardless of what we do internally to improve that, I think the ascent of China and the um, uh, forcefulness and aggressiveness of Russia uh, and their ability to kind of mold the messaging around what they are perceiving as their worldview and is is a um, in direct opposition to what mm-hmm. the U.S. is doing, those are becoming very powerful narratives that we just aren't able to sure. uh, kind of keep up with anymore. Mm-hmm. Median approval of his predecessor, a uh, global superstar, was only 45%. There you mm-hmm. go. So just to put this in perspective, it's not as though the rest of the world's, you know, love affair with Obama was a 90%. Right. Or right. with any of right. the Clinton right. or Bush or anybody else. Uh, so... 30% versus 45 is different than the world loved our previous leaders, and it has rocketed negatively. But they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> they had right. to love him. Uh, a, tiny, a tiny little group of judges in tuxedos <laughs> gave him uh, a Nobel Peace Prize. But the second thing is, uh, I, I suspect that when any president takes positions like, uh, Europe has to pay its share of its own defense. Uh, it, you're going to hurt feelings. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wonder if it's not good for American foreign policy, mm-hmm. at least at some levels, to have said, 
uh, we're happy to do diplomacy, but we want partners at the table, not, uh, you know, quiet surrogates at the yeah. table. No, that's, uh, that's fair. There's a couple things I take away from this. One, there's the perception that um, if the United States withdrew from the international system or if, if, if opinion of the United States declined the way that it has, that everybody is going to flock to China. Well, the reality is that's not happening. So the right, United States right. has declined, but China has not shot up. So China mm-hmm. is still sitting at 31%. Uh, Germany is up at 41%. So Germany now maybe stands out as one of the global leaders. Which is and hilarious. Ru- right, and, China- and Russia is still at 27%. So I think this hurts the United States, but it's not as if the world is suddenly shifting to China's orbit. Right. Mm-hmm. The other thing is it makes me think of Tom as a bit of a, a philosopher as well. And so it made me think of Machiavelli, who says it's better to be feared than loved. And so some have yeah. suggested that what Trump is doing yeah. is that he's pushing back. You know, he's, he's, he's uh, playing bad cop. But Machiavelli, so it was better to be feared than loved, but you don't want to be hated. And so I think there's a fine line there, right? So I I don't have a problem with the United States pushing back and being more aggressive internationally. I I, I don't generally agree with what Trump is doing internationally. But my concern is if you drift into that hated category, Mm -hmm. it makes your job more difficult. Because so much of diplomacy is kind of behind the scenes, building relationships. And when you start calling countries shithole countries, right, that makes it harder, right? So... I, I wonder what's really driving this. And I will say the poll was done before shithole country. So for a 30% now, this it may have ticked down just a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess my concern is, is the world shifting against us? Fearing is fine. Hatred is more problematic. How about another take? The yeah. rest of the world thinks of government what we do. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, if the high watermark is 41% for Germany, that means 60% of the world doesn't even approve of right. the most approved of government on earth. Right. Uh, uh, there's something really important there, right? Government is failing around the world in a, a myriad ways. Yeah. And, and if nobody can get more than 50% approval, uh, that's, that's stunning. Mm-hmm. Because the high point for Obama was in 2009, and that was still only 49%. Right. And, and you're not going to get higher. So George W. Bush, when he left office, they were at 34. So Trump has dropped below that. But you jump from 34 to 49%. But that still isn't, you know, it's not 70%. It's not 80%. Uh, it suggests that there is some cynicism at well, the international level. I mean, you could probably consider that as a rebuke of, you know, the globalized system that Trump is railing against, too. Uh, on top of the fact that what he's doing now is at least... It's perceivable, and we know what, not necessarily what the end goal, but there's a a perceived strategy there, whereas, at least the way that I felt with Obama, it was a lot of very clandestine, um, covert kind of um, aggressive acts and proxy wars that nobody really knew anything about, but was severely hurting us from an international um, policy perspective. Uh, Again, we don't we never really heard about any of the the actions that were going on, mm-hmm. but we were still losing favor in you know extremely important regions around around the world, sure. and that kind of has led into this. But I think it's it's almost better to be, even if your strategy is not the most tactful or the greatest, it's better to be upfront about it as opposed to just being underhanded, and you know pissing down their backs and telling him it's raining, sure, which that, was the approach of the last administration. And certainly Trump is clear about where he wants to be and what his positions are in terms of foreign policy. I'm curious. So he's at Davos now. He, he traveled out and he's at the big World Economic Forum. 
Who's she? <laughs> that crowd is different than the global, you know, response to him. But I'm curious to see how well he plays there. And there, there's this assumption that, oh, they're not going to like him because he's anti-internationalist. I'm not so sure about that. They may suck up to him a little bit in a way, in ways that we didn't fully anticipate. So, Meh. yeah. <laughs> I just can't resist saying that the connection to the very first issue is it looks like an awful lot of the world is hoping for a big government shutdown <laughs> in a lot of different places. <laughs> yes. yeah. All right. Speaking of uh, finances and Davos and following the money, our next topic, we're going to talk about uh, Russia's continued uh, or Russia's intervention in the 2016 intervention in the 2016 election. So it appears that Russia throw, was throwing cash around the 2016 U.S. election like drunken sailors. Uh, Special Counsel Robert Mueller's team is scrutinizing newly uncovered financial transactions between the Russian government and people or businesses inside the United States. In one transaction, Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak received $120,000 10 days after the election. And in another, someone attempted to withdraw $150,000 from the embassy's account five days after Trump's inauguration. The U.S. bank blocked the transaction. Additionally, the FBI is investigating whether a top Russian banker had, with ties to the Kremlin illegally funneled money to the NRA to help with the election of Donald Trump. Now, so much of our attention is focused on this idea of collusion uh, with the Trump administration in Russia. But I think in many ways, the more interesting question is how was Russia financing and the way in which they were using money? So following the money here is, is insightful. So uh, what do we think? Is is that a better is Nick? Is that a better way to get to the truth by watching how Russia threw money around as opposed to who's meeting with whom? Yeah, I mean, I I personally think if there's a thread to follow, especially a monetary thread, that's going to be a much more um, interesting and factual vein to follow as opposed to trying to gather opinions from people who do not want to necessarily cooperate with you unless you know you're going to send them to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I personally think it's it's definitely suspect, um, but I think there's enough information there to, like you said, if if you're following the money, uh, following the money, something is going to uh, come out of the muck at some point. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible for there not to be information if you're doing your investigative research at that point. Did I say at that point? Yeah, many times. <laughs> okay. okay, excuse me. Hold on, let me take more drink. <laughs> You know, for me, thinking about this, uh, there's the whole political dynamic in the United States. Was there any collusion between Trump and Russia? And there, that may or may not be the case, and we'll figure that out eventually. But the deeper concern is the way in which another country is able to infiltrate and tweak the democratic process. And Russia was incredibly, I think, effective at turning us against ourselves. And when you look at the money, you can see some of those in, some of that play out. And it's not, I listed just a couple of them, but a lot of the money was funneled through hardware stores. I mean, it, and so I guess the question is, what's going on here? Is this is this just normal Russian corruption? This is how Russia works, and you have officials in the United States, and they get their kickback? Or is it something deeper trying to, to penetrate the democratic process? And we, we don't know yet, but I'm inclined to think that might be the case. Uh, I'm intrigued by the uh, sort of macro view of this, and that is to say... Uh, let's assume that all of these payments were made. Let's assume money went to the NRA. Let's assume it went to fill in the blank. Yeah. All of this is contingent on Americans not doing their own thinking and their own research. Correct, yes. And I'm struck by the fact that while we're going to spend, uh, one, one can't imagine how much money and how much time and how much agony uh, on this investigation, the simple solution is for Americans to stop being dumb and lazy. <laughs> 
Right? Do your research. But there's uh, Netflix. On, on, there is Netflix. <laughs> uh, do your research. Think. Yeah. Independently of Facebook. That's mm-hmm. uh, not to say that we shouldn't figure out what Russia tried to do. But the reality is, if it turns out everything that's been alleged of the money is true, all they did was buy Facebook ads and uh, uh, pumped money into um, advocacy groups and that sort of thing. Well, I don't know. How different is that than all sorts of other advertising? It's mm-hmm. not, but democracies are particularly vulnerable to that. I guess it feels to me it's different if it's a domestic interest group who's playing up advertising, pumping money into Facebook versus a foreign power doing that. I'm not saying it doesn't feel different yeah. to me. I guess I'm saying that in both events, a shrewd voter should have been able to see mm-hmm. through this very quickly. Right. And and the real problem isn't whether Russia gave the NRA $150,000 to run commercials, you know, yeah. uh, pro-Trump or whatever. The real issue is that Americans are duped this yeah. easily. Yeah. Uh, so no one's talking about that real <laughs> right. issue because everybody's either following the money or trying to prove collusion. And the, 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 I say this to my friend, the political scientist. Yeah. No. What's going on in politics? <laughs> but it's easier to solve the Russian angle than there. it is the, the American indifference, right? Yeah. I, I totally agree with yeah. you. If, 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 but what is that? I don't know. The percentage of people that are getting their news from Facebook now, it's... It's, it's over 50%. Yes. That's their primary that news source. Terribly so, terrifying. So mm-hmm. here a couple points, I guess, for both of you then. We've now gotten to a point where pretty much every news outlet has, from one side or the other, been discredited, uh, completely discredited as partisan. So nobody can trust anything. So I understand the viewpoint uh, from a public perspective, and we don't really have anywhere else to trust. So how are we supposed to do our own research? You know, most people are not academics and are not going to... I, I wouldn't even question. know where the hell you yeah. go at that point. Yeah. Right? It's a great question. And for your point, Bill, how in, in this situation where you're seeing a lot of money get funneled into domestic support groups, how is this fundamentally different from, say, uh, you know, like the Israeli government um, funding or at least supporting, uh, you know, domestic support groups for uh, Israeli policy or Jews in general? Sure. It's... So issue-specific partisanship is, is problematic. Like that, that, that's troubling. But what Russia was doing is they were, if, if we take what we've seen so far to be true, they were supporting Trump, but at a deeper level, they were trying to create discord. You know, they were mobilizing both individuals on the left and the right. So they were trying to turn against the process of democracy. Mm-hmm. That's more deeply troubling than that they want Trump to win, right? So I get that if they think Trump is more sympathetic to Russian causes, that's in their interest. But trying to undermine democracy mm-hmm. is is long-term disturbing. And not just in the United States, but democracy as a thing. It's Russia's not stopping here. The countries aren't going to stop to try to intervene in other countries now using Facebook or whatever the mechanism might be. That that concerns me more than uh, APAC trying to shift conversation about how we understand the Palestinians, right? We can have a narrow conversation about Palestine and Israelis and all of that, but Russia seems to be driving, trying to undermine democracy at a deeper level. Mm-hmm. Right, because there's no allegation that any of these uh, advocacy groups change their, change their position. Uh, right. They just maybe advanced it more aggressively mm-hmm. or, or in additional outlets, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the NRA was pro-gun before they got Russian money. If they did, sure, they're pro-gun after yeah. they got Russian money. Uh, I, so one hopes that the answer isn't, uh, and I know the instinct on the left uh, 
and on the right is always to regulate. Yeah. Right. So if the answer to this is, well, we got to regulate Facebook and we got to regulate Twitter and we got to regulate the news. This terrifies me. Right. I mean, the, the right answer is to try and produce citizens who understand uh, how to be informed mm-hmm. as they vote. The wrong answer is to start uh, a, a Facebook regulation campaign. And note, please, that we're already starting to have this conversation about whether Facebook and Google are monopolies Mm -hmm. that need to be broken up. Uh, If the impetus for doing that becomes that they are uh, uh, mechanisms by which our news is manipulated, this is going to be really bad. Really bad. I I question that just because Facebook and Google and Twitter, while those are where most people get their information or you know is their major news source you also have the option of completely turning that off and still being a normal citizen this didn't really exist up until about a decade ago yeah and people still functioned like human beings right so yeah i i agree with you i i think regulation is not the way to go i i think there's there should be some impetus on the part of the american people to become more uh independently um uh, why can't I think of the word now? I'm really struggling with words tonight. Is that bold uh, Informed, yeah. Wow. <laughs> it just screwed me up. Uh, yeah, ind- uh, independently uh, informed without the need to crowdsource your information from yeah. people you have no idea, who, you know, who is sure. providing it. You know, I, I, Turn your I, Facebook off. It's right, dumb. Right. But like us on Facebook. And I've Twitter been frustrated. And Instagram. <laughs> right. We don't have Instagram. That's but right. like us all of this. I've been, I was frustrated both with Twitter and Facebook and their response to this, where they felt like oh, we don't have a responsibility to try to see what's going on. But like both of you, I am concerned with the regulation solution. And here's why. Once you start. I just down- want to pause. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Mock, yes. progressive. Uh, is worried about the regulation solution. And, and here's here's why. <laughs> My There's hope for America. <laughs> <laughs> once you start doing that, so and it's not, not and I'm not so worried about it in the United States, but once you say you can regulate Twitter, you can regulate right. Facebook, regimes outside of the United States will then see that as justification for And they already down. are. Right? Yes. Uh, and so that's that's troubling, right? So once you start attacking these platforms, think about Iran, think about Egypt, where Twitter was the mechanism mm-hmm. for spreading revolution and pushback against the regime, like you, you have to have that, and you can't have filters on that. Mm-hmm. That being said, I think Facebook was complicit in not acknowledging that they knew, or at least should have known, that Russia was intervening. So I don't know if regulation is the answer, but there should be some, at least, some transparency or call to the FBI or something to say that this is going well, on. What would they say? Hello, FBI. It's Facebook calling. <laughs> Well, we'd just like you to know that we think money from Russia came to buy an ad on a Facebook feed uh, that American voters might see. I mean, is that what, it, what exactly should they report? So they didn't even try. So and I can't remember if this was Facebook or YouTube because they were Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. They were all over the place. They paid in rubles, right? So you know, it's, and it wasn't. We're not talking about small amounts. They were play, paying in pretty significant uh, amounts here. So that to me seems to say like, hey, there is something that there is some attempt to manipulate the democracy. Uh, so I think that is worthy. I don't know if it's regulation, but at least maybe some transparency. Somebody steps up. Facebook says, hey, this is going on. Or some acknowledgement that this is You know what Russian they did? Ad. They say, uh, we're going to rework our algorithms to show you things from uh, your friends and, and family right. that makes it you can have you know real, engaged conversations yeah. again. 
And yeah, we'll look at the news thing and make sure we vet that a little bit more. It doesn't cost them anything, and it's it kind of pushes that to the side. They're never, ever going to admit that they were complicit in that. And we know they were because it's their main revenue sure. stream. Yeah, well, right. I, I know we're over topic. One more question for you guys. Do you think, so Tom, you were talking about uh, enlightening the democracy, pulling us up. Do Facebook or Twitter, do they bear any responsibility to help in that process? That's a great question. Uh, as a general matter, I, I think the market ought to control. Yeah. Uh, and, and one hopes that users would push uh, uh, Facebook, Google, and those places to do that sort of thing rather than regulation. I don't know that a corporation like Google has a civic responsibility uh, to educate. Um, but I guess I'd have to mull that over. That's, yeah. it's, a, it's a really, if, it, if it's done voluntarily, um, if it's done in ways that are uh, that, that honor the First Amendment, yeah. uh, I guess I can live with that. But I'm really worried, I'll mention in a minute, yet another compelled speech case. Sure. So, so if, what we, uh, if what we say to Google and, and Facebook is you've got a duty to build great citizens, uh, and, and therefore you're going to have to put political science podcasts into <laughs> right. people's news feeds and that sort of thing. That sounds great. I think you're forcing onto a private entity uh, uh, an obligation uh, that puts words in their mouth. Sure. And this is, this is too often government's answer. Let's put words in people's mouth. And, and, and again, I'll mention a case in a minute where California is just dying to put words in somebody's mouth. It's an interesting point. And I think there's probably a line between pulling the democracy up and maybe harm. And I think Facebook mm-hmm. is allowed harm to occur. And so how do you prevent that harm without regulation? That's that's what I want, right? I want to find a way to have those platforms exist, but not allow them to be so manipulated that it hurts the democratic process. Get off of the platforms. You don't need to be on there. You just don't. But we're past that point, aren't we're we? We're not past that point. We are absolutely not past that point. Yeah. I turned mine off two years ago, and I cannot tell you how happy I am not to have to look at people's babies or people's food or people's <laughs> weddings and their divorces six months later. It's There's no reason to be on there. It's not a news source. It was built as a way for college kids to keep in touch with other people from high school and things like that. It was not meant to be your main news source or vessel for any sort of salient information outside of, wow, I had like a six-pack in in 30 minutes today. It's a new record. Like, that That was Facebook. I ate a Tide capsule. Right. And I'm challenging you <laughs> to do the same thing. We're talking about Tide capsules now. Uh, this, this is going to sound self-serve, and I know we're way over time on this I one, but care. I just I can't resist saying it as we sit in a faculty office. Um, why aren't we talking about the role of higher ed in, in producing citizens? We've essentially said that a college degree is a thing everybody should have, right? Uh, not high school anymore, but a college degree. Uh, so, so what's the role of higher ed in preparing people uh, to engage in, in political activity thoughtfully uh, yeah. and effectively? I'd much rather have higher ed take up that standard than government tell Google and Facebook what they should do to their algorithms. And I know, I know yeah, you're not, yeah. I'm, I'm oversimplifying no, right. what you're arguing, but um, education is the answer, not regulation of the, the vehicles by which people talk to each other, in my judgment. I, I totally agree with that. And I would say within political science, this is a major topic about mm-hmm. our responsibility to help do this. Yeah. I, Nick, I think you, you said I was overly hopeful early in the podcast. <laughs> I think you are 
in the sense that I, I oh no I know it won't happen yeah so that's that's my but concern, I'd like that it I think to we're drifting yeah. in that direction where we're we've jumped off the Twitter Facebook Instagram cliff and I think there are real implications for democracy that we have to we have to grapple with uh, mm-hmm. as we move forward I agree mm-hmm. yeah all right uh, final topic here can somebody please find peaches or tasty so. <laughs> All right, so this final case, District of Columbia versus, uh, Columbia versus Westby. Uh, the Supreme Court announced a decision in the District of Columbia versus Westby on Monday. The case arose from a 2008 complaint about loud music coming from a vacant house in northeastern Washington. Police officers found a, quote, makeshift strip club. Now, Justice Thomas wrote with several women, uh, wrote with several women wearing only bras and thongs uh, with cash tucked into their garter belts. The officers smelled marijuana and found beer, liquor, and condoms. There were 21 people in the house, and they gave varying accounts about who had invited them. Some said they were attending a bachelor party, but could not name the bachelor. And Justice Thomas noted, people normally do not throw a bachelor party without a bachelor. Uh, other party go- party goers said that a woman named Peaches or Tasty was renting the house and had invited them. Now, Tom, can you explain why the U.S. Supreme Court is weighing in on this makeshift makeshift strip club case? God. Listeners may not know it only takes four of the nine justices to grant cert in a case. Yeah. And, of course, one of the things that happens immediately after cert is granted in a case is people say to themselves, well, why did they hear that? Yeah, they take 100 cases a year out of something like 8,000 uh, cert petitions. Uh, and I don't think anybody has produced a plausible answer to why it was they heard this case. It, the idea that there isn't probable cause for the police to enter right. a house where they uh, see a disturbance taking place, smell marijuana and all of that sort of thing, uh, I'm mystified by it. Uh, Let's just say I, th- I think some of the justices... Uh, uh, Clearly, some of the justices in oral argument and in their opinions are, are sort of suggesting, I'm not sure why I heard this case either. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now, let's just say, though, in a, in a previous court ruling, a court uh, found with the party goers and paid them like a million dollars, which is crazy mm-hmm. to me. It is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a civil jury. Yeah. And uh, let's just say that uh, it's a civil jury. Sure. Right. Uh, civil juries give millions of dollars in all sorts of scenarios. And frankly, at a time when people don't like, don't trust, uh, and, and want to sort of push back at police, I imagine, and I'm saying this much more seriously, the million dollars had a lot less to do with Peaches and her party and a lot more to do with we don't like police very much. Right. And, and throwing a million dollar verdict at this case is a way of saying to police, get out of our lives or, sure. or that sort of thing. Of course, the people that give these verdicts don't realize they're also paying them. Right, right. right. <laughs> there is no private party pay for the police right. when, when these verdicts are entered. As we sit here in Chicago paying all these Burge uh, settlements and, and verdicts, it's, it's yes. a very troubling thing. All right, so now that you've talked about peaches, you have a couple other interesting cases yeah, you want to share Yeah, two cases coming up for oral argument that people might want to tune in uh, and, and think through. Uh, I, I hope people know as they listen that the Oye site, that's O-Y-E-Z, um, has oral argument tr- uh, audio. Uh, and nothing will build your confidence in the Supreme Court, and I mean this seriously, like listening to them do their business. So knowing that these two cases are coming up might be uh, an incentive for people to log in and find these oral arguments. First is a really interesting case called uh, the National Institute of Family Life Advocates, uh, and it involves compelled speech in California. I said I'd come back to this. Basically, this case instructs, I shouldn't say the case, California has instructed 
family planning entities uh, that they must tell people who walk through their front door that there is the availability of uh, essentially free abortion in the state of California and family planning services as well. Uh, uh, the argument here from uh, uh, the uh, Institute is this is compelled speech. And uh, there's an interesting trend here. The Masterpiece Baking case is also about compelled speech. Right. And uh, uh, one of the things that heartens me about the court right now is that they are really seriously thinking through the degree to which state can put words in your mouth, whether it's Masterpiece Baking. And I realize some people think that's not the way you define that case, but um, I'm going to take the view that it is. Mm -hmm. Or in California. Uh, telling family planning clinics what they've got to say. Uh, uh, th this business of compelled speech is really important because most people think of the First Amendment as protecting their right to say what they want, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the other half of it is preventing government from telling you what you must say. Mm -hmm. and, and this California case is about that. Now, at the same time, uh, and, and I'll just mention the oral argument there is not till March, it's the 20th. This is a you must say this case. Yeah? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, there's an interesting you can't say this case, and it's coming up. Uh, the date is uh, the, the 28th of February. This is the Minnesota Voters Alliance case uh, that involves an interesting state statute that prohibits you from wearing politically messaged apparel as you vote. Uh, so uh, the, the case involves a guy who goes to vote wearing a T-shirt that on the front says, please ID me. Uh, and on the back has the Gadsden flag, don't tread on me. Uh, this is in Minnesota, impermissible. Um, now, I raise this, and I'm so delighted to do it, after Minnesota was annihilated. Uh, Bill and I are big Packer fans. Right. Because one of the pieces of evidence in the case is that uh, people were asked in Minnesota, would, would a Vikings jersey uh, be political speech, the answer to which, get ready for it, is yes. Yes, yeah. If you're wearing it in a context where there's a ballot referendum uh, or a ballot uh, you know, action on uh, building a stadium. So the question here is, to what extent can the state regulate speech in and around polling places? Mm -hmm. um, uh, one wonders, again, coming back to the theme of Americans are dumb and lazy. Is it really the case that a person walks into their polling place and as they're prepared to punch uh, the Chad through, they see the shirt, please ID me, and they say, wait, I guess I'd better vote Republican because they're for voter mm -hmm. ID. I wasn't going to do that until I saw the T-shirt. I'm not saying there shouldn't be order at polling places, but the idea that the state wants to regulate what you're wearing because it has a political message. I've used the word terrifying. You, uh, we both use some phrases too often. Terrifying is the one I've yeah. used too many times today. But this is really frightening. What business does the state have regulating whether or not I wear a shirt with a political message? It's an interesting question. In a polling place. In a polling place. Now, I know like at polling places, you're not allowed to advertise once you get within a certain distance. Mm -hmm. So you can't have the campaign signs anymore. I, 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 I'm concerned with the idea that you can't express yourself politically, politically when you're going to vote politically, right? Yeah. I mean, this seems to me, if there was... It's a different dynamic if, if what you wear is, is potentially going to cause violence. Or, but no, mm -hmm. just expressing yourself. I think the... Nothing about the garb in this case, any of the parties think, was provocative in the sense that it could produce a violent response. What argument is made for why you should constrain that speech? What, what's the case? I don't... I well, guess Minnesota not... uses a phrase uh, that they want to protect their, uh, their voting places. I'm trying to from issue-oriented material designed to influence or impact voting, 
material promoting a group with recognizable political views because they think it interferes with uh, the political process. And here's here's the thing. It is the political right, process, right? <laughs> right? Uh, if they had said something, now here's the thing. If, if there's something that you do in a polling process, in a polling zone that is intimidating, yes. w- w- that is different. To me, that seems distinct from sure. sharing. Sure. Right. Uh, if you're standing in front of a polling place with $20 bills, right. trying mm-hmm. to buy votes, yeah. I get that. Yeah. We stop that. Uh, if you are intimidating voters, and you might recall that we've had some of those cases exactly. that the Department of Justice didn't want to pursue, oddly enough, I understand stopping that. If you're doing something that disrupts the orderly casting of votes, which is essentially the Minnesota phrase here, it seems to me you've got to decide that the thing truly does produce disorder. And there's zero evidence that a guy walking in with a Please ID Me t-shirt produce disorder yeah. of, of any sort or could produce disorder mm-hmm. indeed if it did the problem isn't the shirt the problem is the person provoked by it mm-hmm. right right that's not hate speech that's not uh, intentionally inflammatory speech and it makes me think about so to, to circle back to the family planning speech that also seems problematic Depending on what the speech is, right? If we're saying mm-hmm. here, if the state is saying that there's certain speech that's privileged over other speech, right? this could flip how one understands this case. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all about the politics, right? California wants to put words in a person's mouth. Yes. You must tell people they can have an abortion even at, at state expense, even if you are a religious organization with objections to that practice. Sure. Minnesota wants to prevent a person from right. conveying a political message in the most political of all possible places, the polling place. Mm-hmm. We're going to learn a lot about speech and where the court is yeah. on this speech. Do you yeah. think, are these cases going to be 5-4, or do you think this the numbers may shake up a little bit? The court has tilted pretty heavily toward protection of speech. Yeah. So I'm be careful about not predicting masterpiece, sure. because that one's a much harder one. But I, Justice Kennedy, if he's the swing vote, is very much uh, a, a pro-speech uh, quasi-libertarian. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it seems to me in both of these cases, the likelihood is the court's going to say we want to prevent the compelled speech in California and we want to maybe more clearly, and I, I could see the Alliance case in Minnesota being 9-0. Yeah. Right, that this just, there's no sensible explanation well, Viking for regulating. So well, yeah. that's, that's <laughs> right. That solves it all. <laughs> one, one hopes that the vote is akin to the score in the Vikings yes. game. Both of those results would be deeply pleasing to me. Oh, that, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So some good stuff. Yeah. Shameless plugs, Nick? Uh, yeah. We're probably uh, at time, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bit longer than, than we have been um, as, as of late. Um, yeah, we're... Boy, so I feel like the variable is me. <laughs> <laughs> no, longer than good. we've been of late, and uh, what changed? No, it, it was I, these, you know, we don't... It was Facebook. That's what pulled us in as we got in this good conversation yeah. about Facebook. Good Facebook. Yeah. yeah. No, we don't really get to have these in-depth legal, uh, legal conversations as much as we would like. Yeah. So, no, we, we appreciate you being here and, and being willing to do that. So Love to do it. Um, yeah, uh, we're, we're growing at, at an increased rate. So thank you, everybody who's listening. Um, if you like what you hear, or even if you don't like what you hear, um, share us and like us on iTunes. Um, Facebook uh, at Barstool Politics, Twitter at Barstool Paul. Um, 
We're also on Stitcher and TuneIn and Google Play Music now as well. So a lot of different ways that you can find the podcast. Nick has been busy. I know. It's really it's very it's it's good though. It's it's all good. More choices are always better. Um, Google and Android are, are dumber though than Apple, but that's that's a personal opinion. I won't um, you know prevent you from choosing those things. Um, yeah. Anything else from you guys? No. This was fun. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for yeah, joining thank us. You very Appreciate much. it. Yeah. It was great.